on the job with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg. It's on the job, the podcast, all about making your working life better. Francis Leach, your host on what's been a busy pod day. There's a lot going on. Hey, before we get to all of that, once again, I'm going to put out the big bowl and say, if you love the podcast, do us a favour. Really simply, just go to your favourite pod app, give us a rating, bunch some stars in there, just helps people find the podcast, bumps us up the charts, helps us fight the algorithm, gets the information and the inspiration out there. It all helps. It really does. But thank you for being with us. As I said, very busy day coming up. In a moment, we'll hear from Lloyd Williams, who's the National Secretary of the Health Services Union, about a bit of a breakthrough in the aged care sector when it comes to finally increasing the level of play to give those hardworking and vital workers the financial security they so richly deserve. We'll talk to Lloyd in a moment. But first, it is going to be a hectic week or so in Canberra in the first week of September when the Albanese Labor government hosts its Jobs and Skills Summit, bringing together people from all across the economy and the nation, and of course, including significantly and most importantly, members of the union movement from the ACTU, its affiliates and workers who want to have their say, want to be front and centre in how our economy works. It's about bloody time that was the case. So ahead of that, Jim Stanford from the Centre for Future Work, uh, part of our uh, friends at the Australia Institute, has written a really important paper called An Economy That Works for People. It's been commissioned by the ACTU, Australian Unions, and it looks at a range of recommendations that put workers and ordinary people at the centre of the economy, the economy working for people, rather than the other way around, which is what it's like at the moment. With high inflation, low wages, no job security and corporate profits through the roof. I'm not making this stuff up. The facts don't lie. That's how it is. So the union movement will be taking that case to the job summit and uh, trying to shift the needle to reorient our economy to make it work for you and me. So let's catch up with Jim Stanford after this and have a talk about what's in his paper, An Economy That Works For People. I loved reading your paper, and one of the things that you say in it that is really important as a fundamental baseline is that the economy doesn't just happen like the sun coming up and the moon rising as a force of nature. It's a series of choices we make about what our priorities are, and this paper talks about putting workers back at the centre of our economic plan. It seems sensible, doesn't it, that human beings who get out of bed on Monday morning and go off and do a job and produce actual goods and services that we add up and call our GDP. It's human beings who make the economy work. Often that gets lost in some of the conventional discourse that tries to treat the economy as if it's separate from us, like it's some kind of machine or even some kind of animal, some kind of hungry animal out there that we have to feed. And that's nonsense, especially, Francis. We were reminded of this during the COVID-19 pandemic and hundreds of thousands of people had to call in sick. Then all of a sudden, the economy was grinding to a halt. And that, in a way, was a, a very dramatic reminder for us that human beings make the economy function. And if we want a strong economy, we have to take care of those human beings. We have to value them. We have to make sure that they're secure, well-motivated, well-compensated, and protected. And those are, I think, the core values that have to be reflected in any economic policy 
framework. And we have this economy at the moment which exposes the frailties and the lies of the neoliberal dream, as it were, isn't it? Because we've got supposedly low unemployment, but the truth is a lot of that low number is, is down to the fact that we have huge numbers of people in insecure work and not enough hours. We've got high inflation, but we have wages stagnant, so people are not keeping pace with the price of goods and services they've got to pay for, despite the fact they're working hard, and we've got no impetus for wage rises. So at the bottom level, workers in the current economic framework are the last priority. Uh, you're absolutely right, Francis. And, and some of these challenges, of course, are related to the pandemic and what happened and how we came out of it. So we got to take that into account for sure. But many of these challenges have been brewing for years before. And uh, the first part of our paper, frankly, sums up the evidence of Australia's underperformance over the last decade. That, of course, was the decade that a, a series of three coalition governments was in power. They were focused on enriching business and uh, helping out their mates and particular industries. Uh, they were vilifying unions and, and trying to discipline workers and keep them insecure. So in a way, I'm not surprised that Peter Dutton doesn't want to come to the Jobs Summit, because of course the Jobs Summit is going to be addressing failures that are the legacy of his government. Part of it is going to be to catalog and analyze and understand those failures, the failure of wage growth, for example. We had a decade with zero wage growth, and now real wages are falling because wages, as you mentioned, are falling way behind uh, inflation. We've got an enormous imbalance between corporate profits and corporate investment. Corporate profits have never been higher as a share of GDP, and that's not an accident. That's because the government has been, until now, bending over backwards to enrich corporations and the investors who own them, while suppressing uh, wages and making sure that workers uh, don't get a decent share of the pie. But what are corporations doing with that money? They are not investing it. In fact, investment as a share of GDP has never been weaker. Of the hundreds of billions of dollars that corporations earned in profits this year, only 37 cents on the dollar was actually reinvested in new capital, equipment, technology, and so on. It's like money going down the drain in our economy. The money goes to the corporations, but they don't pump it back into the economy. Well, I mean, the paper points this out, doesn't it? I mean, I've looked at the figures that you uh, provide there. Gross corporate profits grew by 83% over the last six years, three times as fast as aggregate nominal wages. It's extraordinary that that share of whatever wealth is being generated is just being hoovered up in profits that, as you said, aren't being reinvested. This can't continue because the, you know, the, the economy won't sustain it and people are really struggling. I mean, the social dislocation and all the problems that are associated with people being underpaid and not being able to pay their way will have its own impact on the economy, won't they, Jim? Yeah, you know, Francis, this explosion in corporate profits that you're mentioning has many impacts and many reasons to be concerned about it. One is just simple fairness. Why should these powerful institutions and the rich people who are their biggest owners take so much of our wealth? So there's an automatic moral concern with what's going on. But there's some other economic fallout from it. One of them is around the issue of uh, productivity and productivity growth. Australian workers are working more productively than ever. Productivity has never been higher. The average Australian worker produces $110 of real GDP with each hour of work. And I can assure you, they're not getting paid $110 uh, for that hour. And yet, even though productivity has grown, wages have not grown. That is the ultimate source of that boom in corporate profits. And without the increase in wages to sort of match and validate the improvements in productivity, then productivity growth loses its value as a priority for economic progress. So that's one additional economic concern. Another additional economic concern related to the 
explosion of corporate profits is inflation. Uh, you know, we hear all the time about the risk of a so-called wage price spiral and the, the, the risk that if workers get a wage increase, that will cause inflation. Why have we got the highest inflation in decades, even though wages went nowhere? It clearly is not caused by wages and by the labor market and by workers asking for too much. It is being caused by profits. So we, in this paper, we actually show, we, we calculate a new measure called unit profit cost. Unit profit cost, which is how much profit is baked into each dollar of additional GDP that the economy produces. And we often hear about unit labor cost because the coalition leaders, the reserve bank, conventional economists are obsessed that workers are going to get a wage increase. We never hear about unit profit cost. Unit profit cost is up 63% in just the last six years compared to unit labor costs, which uh, have actually declined in real terms and are well below the RBA's inflation target in nominal terms. So uh, it's not just moral outrage uh, at stake here with the run-up in corporate profits. It's also fundamentally damaging uh, Australia's economic potential. Well, Jim, let's talk about some of the reforms that are proposed in your paper, An Economy That Works for People, starting with the Reserve Bank. Now, the Reserve Bank has been getting a caning, and rightly so in recent times, for its projections when it comes to inflation, which have been wildly off the mark, and then flip-flopping on the issue as to whether workers should get a pay rise, initially supporting pay rises uh, relative to productivity as a way of keeping the economy ticking on, and then reversing on that at the same time getting their projections it points to a bigger challenge, not just, you know, a question of who's in charge of the Reserve Bank or, or anything like that. It's more, I think, the, the kind of the structural power and, and authority that we've given the Reserve Bank. In theory, they're supposed to be concerned with one thing and one thing alone, and that is targeting the rate of inflation and keeping it around 2.5%, which frankly is a number that was pulled out of the air. There's no particular rationale for 2.5%, but that's what they've been aiming for. Now, for six straight years, they missed that target from below. So for six straight years, we had inflation below the 2.5% target. Now it's not a ceiling, it's supposed to be a target. And you should be concerned if inflation is too low, just like you're concerned if it's too high. And the reason it was too low is because wage growth was so weak. So the RBA failed to meet its target, and at least they recognized, uh, Dr. Philip Lowe, the, the governor, said several times, the problem here is wages aren't growing. We can't hit the 2.5% target when wages are so flat. And he highlighted the uh, perversity of things like government uh, pay caps on civil servants, uh, public servants, for example, and other things that have kept wages down. Now, all of a sudden, after six years of missing the target from below, now inflation is above the target. And now the Reserve Bank is jacking up the interest rate, saying we're going to get it back to 2.5% no matter what. And they use those words, no matter what. That should send a chill down the back of anyone who works for a living in Australia, because it means they're willing and prepared to throw Australia into a recession if that's what it takes. And it is probably what it will take to get inflation back down to 2.5%. So after a decade of absolutely zero wage growth in real terms, suddenly now the Reserve Bank is also saying you have to take a big wage cut. In real terms, workers have already taken a 3% cut and they're telling us to get ready to take it more. And that's just what we have to do. And this is why we need to have a different framework for the RBA. We have to give it a different set of instructions. It's not just inflation they should be concerned with. They should be looking at those other variables as well. And uh, we have to have them work in concert with other governmental and regulatory agencies so that it's not just a question of jacking up interest rates and throwing the whole economy into a recession. That's a cure that would be worth it, worse than the disease, frankly. 
So uh, we need to have, I think, a more nuanced and flexible and multidimensional approach to managing inflation, always with a focus on full employment as the ultimate goal. Because uh, as we said at the outset, it's people working and producing that make the economy function. And that has to be kept front and center. And part of that is, as you say, a, a fair inflation reduction strategy that isn't just about disenfranchising workers and using unemployment to dampen demand in order to bring prices down, which is just devastating for working families who are already doing it really hard. You also talk in the paper about regulating labour markets so that real wages rise in tandem with labour productivity. Can you explain to people what that actually means? I mean, the, the whole idea of the conventional approach to managing inflation uh, that the RBA has followed is that they want to keep a certain amount of unemployment in the labour market. And I know that sounds perverse, to think that a government agency is actually trying to keep unemployment here. We, we should be trying to get rid of unemployment, but they preferred to have a certain level uh, that they thought was the best at keeping wage growth in line. And that theory has not worked very well. So first of all, for many years, we had way too high unemployment and underemployment. We lost the potential income gains that we could have had if we'd put people to work. And now we have a situation where they actually want to jack up unemployment to try and get inflation back under control. There's better ways to try and do that, where you could combine very high levels of employment, near full employment, with stable rates of inflation. But it means that you have to have a different approach to managing wage growth over time. And instead of assuming that it's just going to be, you know, a a dog-eat-dog battle battle to the death between employers and unions over, over wages, and it's a battle that employers more often than not have been winning, What we do instead is we put in place institutional supports and structures and practices, things like collective bargaining, uh, things like a stronger national minimum wage, things like an awards system that is no longer just a safety net, but is actually seen as a way of progressing wages and conditions over time. You could sit down and negotiate those processes in a sensible, sustainable way. That way workers get a decent wage increase every year, even if times are bad, and that's actually helpful because that puts money in their in, in workers' pockets. They spend it and that helps make the economy stronger. Similarly, if the economy is strong and the unemployment rate is very low, well, you're still going to get a decent wage increase. You're not going to shoot for the moon just because you've got some bargaining power. You're going to get a wage increase that reflects productivity growth and inflation over time. So this is a rational, cooperative way to regulate wage growth over time so that Australians can share in the prosperity they produce, but in a way that's stable and sustainable in terms of the other macroeconomic goals that we have. You also talk in this paper about taxation and how it can also play a part in making a fairer economy work and putting workers at the centre of our economic plan. What measures do you see within the realm of taxation that are important to be undertaken here? Well, the reason we started talking about taxes in this paper, uh, Francis, is to address this, I think, myth that's out there, that the reason we've got inflation at 6.1% right now is because Australians have too much spending power. They've got too much money to spend. And, you know, that's going to come as a surprise to most working families (laughs) who can hardly cover the bills, right? But there is this idea that aggregate demand, as they call it in economics, is too strong and we have to reduce aggregate demand in order to bring prices back down. Now, I don't buy that as the main explanation for the inflation that we're experiencing. It's more due to the unique conditions of the pandemic, things like the supply chains that were disrupted, uh, the uh, war in Ukraine and the shock to energy prices that we've experienced, and some of the readjustments after the, the lockdowns of the pandemic. So I don't think that the core problem is too much spending power. If it is, to the extent that we want to restrain spending power, 
then you shouldn't go after average workers who didn't cause the problem. You should go after the segments of society that can best afford to pay a little bit more and to consume a little bit less. And I would start with the corporations who've made out like bandits in the current inflation. Think of the energy companies, the supermarket chains and others who've got record profits. Those record profits are the flip side of the coin of the higher prices that we pay for everything we buy. Uh, we should also look at high income households. Frankly, they don't need to borrow to go out and finance their spending. They don't borrow to buy a yacht. They, they buy a yacht because they're rich. So they aren't going to be affected by higher interest rates. It's a very unfair way to try and reduce purchasing power and bring down inflation. So having a fairer taxes for high income households and particularly on the corporations who've made such record profits is, a, is just a better way of trying to control the level of purchasing power in the economy and uh, help to bring down inflation in that regard. Jim, it's been great talking to you. The paper and economy for working people, people can find uh, via the Australian Union's website. AustralianUnions.org.au or they can search the Australian Institute and the Centre for Future Work and they will find it there as well. And uh, it's going to be a lively and important discussion at the Jobs and Skills Summit in early September and you've made an enormous contribution to making sure that workers are at the centre of the discussion. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you very much, Francis, for your show and for having me on it. Dr. Jim Stanford there from the Centre for Future Work at the Australia Institute. Their paper is called An Economy That Works for People. If you go to the ACTU website or the Australian Union's website, just chuck any of those phrases in your favourite browser and search engine and you will find it. You can read the whole thing there uh, and it will be a central focus of uh, the union movement's voice at the upcoming Jobs and Skills Summit that Anthony Albanese's Labor government is hosting in Canberra in the first week of September. In a moment, Lloyd Williams from the Health Services Union. On the job with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg. Well, the aged care sector has been in crisis for more years than we care to admit, but the pandemic really brought it to the fore, didn't it? I mean, we couldn't any longer avoid the fact that aged care was at breaking point. And the key element to it was the fact that the workers in that system who were expected to do hard, important and at times, very, very stressful work were paid a pittance. They'd be better off sometimes just working in a supermarket. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but we're talking about a career where people are highly skilled and have the well-being and the future of our elderly Australians literally in their hands. Well, there's a huge movement going on at the moment to change that. To fix aged care, we need to fix the workforce crisis. And it looks like there might have been a breakthrough on this issue. With the federal government's submission last week to the Fair Work Commission, the Fair Work Commission's work value case, supporting a significant rise in pay for aged care workers. This is something that unions, led by the Health Services Union and the Australian Nursing and Midwifery Midwifery Federation, the United Workers Union, all those unions who are in the sector have been campaigning on for a number of years. Lloyd Williams is one of those campaigners. He's the National Secretary with the Health Services Union, and he joins us here on the job. Thanks, Francis. Another step closer towards a huge shift in the battle to win better paying conditions and a better lived experience for both workers and residents in aged care this week. Yeah, absolutely. We're really pleased uh, that, you know, the new Albanese Federal Labor Government is doing what it said it would do. It said it would back aged care workers in their uh, case for uh, better pay and they've now made 
a very strong submission to the Fair Work Commission doing just that. So we're really pleased that the government is delivering on what it said it would do. So it hasn't actually mandated a target itself to the Fair Work Commission. I guess the protocols around that is it can't be seen to be telling the Fair Work Commission to do its job. But it did say it supports, quote, significantly higher, end quote, rise to the current awards. So is that as far as you could have expected the government to go on this? Yeah, we always knew that the government would leave the final decision to the independent umpire, but um, their submissions are very strong in terms of supporting the case that the value of aged care work is significantly undervalued and also undervalued because of the gendered nature of the workforce. And they support the proposition that aged care workers need a significant increase. And also, very importantly, they commit to fund any increase that the uh, Commission determines. And this is something that's supported by other key stakeholders in this particular sector, isn't it? Aged and Community Care Providers Association CEO Paul Sadler, who's the interim CEO uh, at that organisation, also backs this pay rise as absolutely necessary. Yes, and um, and importantly, aged care employers. We have employers right across the country calling out that they support the full 25%. So the employer associations have been supportive, but they haven't named a figure. But a great number of um, aged care service providers and employers who provide services directly have called out the um, support for the full 25%. Uniting Care, for example, have been very strong on this. Hammond Care up in New South Wales have been very strong. So most of the large aged care um, direct providers have been calling out and saying we need the full 25%. So when the economic hardheads go, where's the money coming from? We can't afford it. They come up against the argument, well, we can't afford not to. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, you know, we're uh, we're dealing with people's lives here. We're dealing with ageing Australians who have made a great contribution to the health of our country. And it's only right that in their time of need in ageing that the country turns around and supports them. So we can't afford not to do this. If we want safe, quality care for our older Australians, we have to do this. How badly has the aged care workforce been degraded by the last couple of years and that, you know, meeting up against the the very real low pay and uh, insecure work model that's been in place for so long now? So these two things come together, health crisis where their own health is endangered, the demands on them are enormous, the pay is poor and the job security is rubbish. Have we lost a lot of people along the way? Yeah, Francis, it's been an absolute tsunami, you know. Um, uh, people are uh, burnt out, tired, traumatised and are leaving in droves. So so we're not only struggling to keep, you know, the really important people that we have and who make a difference to uh, people's lives, but, uh, you know, that they're leaving, but we can't attract people uh, as well. And in a really tight job market, who would choose to come and work in aged care for, you know, 23 bucks an hour 
when they can go off in a whole range of other industries and do a lot better and not have to deal with some of the emotional trauma you know, that aged care workers have gone through, particularly through the pandemic. Can you imagine that these workers, you know, provide care every single day to very vulnerable people? You know, they sit by them when they're at end of life and then they go through the pandemic and um, the support by the previous government was all over the place. They felt that they had been abandoned, but now there's... um, there's light at the end of the tunnel that finally we've got a government that uh, that cares and has been prepared to say so. Is this one other aspect of this that needs to be discussed, that these jobs need are careers and they should be careers and they should be valued as careers and paid appropriately as a way to build a workforce that stays in aged care, that builds a memory around what to do and, and passing that on to the next set of workers as well so so that we have a you know building capacity from worker to worker, from generation to generation? Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's so much work to be done. This pay case is extremely important and, and and I think it's the number one issue to deal with now. But once we deal with wages, we then have to deal with building proper career structures, better on the job training, better career development and better support so that we can bring younger people into the aged care sector and people who are prepared to make it a career option. We want to build aged care into a professional career for people who are leaving school and they make it a long-term option for themselves. Uh, so there's a, there's a lot more that we need to do in terms of um, supporting you know, skills development and uh, professional development and ensuring that we have not just a flat structure where you know, all of the personal care workers are at one level, but we build an um, advanced career structure so that people can specialise in particular areas in aged care and they can be paid at a higher level and rewarded for their, uh, their efforts. Just a last couple of questions for you, Lloyd. The response from some of your members to Annika Wells and the Albanese government making this statement early in the week supporting a significant rise in wages for them, do they feel like they're seeing some light at the end of what's been a dark tunnel? Yeah, absolutely. You know, aged care workers are looking at this and they're saying, finally, you know, finally there's some hope. I was in Canberra last week with aged care workers from New South Wales, Victoria, Tasmania and South Australia and they met with all of the the ministers. They met with Minister Wells and Minister Kearney and, and Mark Butler and all of them got a terrific hearing and they all come out of those meetings invigorated in terms of saying, you know, finally people are listening and they understand the plight of aged care. They see that uh, finally that they've got a government that listens. So there's real hope now for them. And just to finish, what's the timeline on the Fair Work Commission actually uh, giving uh, its findings and deliberation on this Fair Work case? Oh, look, that's hard to say. The Commission will uh, will determine those themselves, but we hope that the Commission now, having got this positive submission from the government and having heard of all of the other evidence, that they will move quickly to deliver a quick decision because aged care can't wait. We need a decision quickly and we hope that the Commission will hear that call and and make a, uh, a speedy decision. Lloyd, thanks for being with us on the job once again. Absolute pleasure. With Francis Leach and Sally Rugg, this is On The Job. 
Lloyd Williams, the National Secretary of the Health Services Union, one of a number of unions, along with the ANMF, the Australian Nursing and Midwifery Federation and the United Workers Union, who've been working tirelessly to improve pay and conditions for those workers in the aged care sector. He's uh, always really uh, great to have on the podcast. Thank you for listening this week. We'll be back again next week with another edition of On The Job. Hope you're well. Catch you then. Bye-bye.